now. Okay, um, now week 10. Uh, welcome to, to the second last week. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, this week we are going to talk about the global and the regional uh, context within which uh, US-China relations are played out. So now let's um, why we are going to talk about the regional and uh, global context. This is because, yeah, arguably this is the most um, important bilateral relationship in the world. And this is not just a bilateral relationship between the US and China, of course. Uh, it, whatever they do, um, however the state of their relationship, they are going to uh, impact the broader region and even the whole world. Um, so the dogfight, if you like, uh, between the US and China has now become the fight of two giant elephants. Um, as the African proverb says, uh, when elephants fight, uh, the grass will suffer. And so the grass, that's the neighbors, that's the, uh, the other countries. So that's why um, this is an incredibly important uh, relationship. And uh, as we're going to, we are going to discuss next week, this is a relationship that is profoundly relevant to Australia as well. So now um, we have covered, yeah, this is a very high stake game. Um, so much is at stake. And for the two countries, indeed, um, who will become the uh, dominant leader seems to be at stake, not just their own territorial uh, interests or some trade uh, benefits, but indeed uh, the, the global dominance. So let's move to yeah, some more uh, broad elements of this kind of the relationship between great powers and the order, uh, the relation uh, with the regional and global order, its uh, involvement and uh, evolution and its um, development. We, we know the, there are many different uh, aspects of how great powers could uh, influence the international orders. So, for example, through uh, military power, by uh, changing the landscape of regional and global military alliances, uh, as we have just uh, seen recently, uh, the formation of AUKUS, um, Australia, the UK, and the United States. So this would transform the regional and indeed uh, the global strategic landscape. Also economically, uh, great powers could use their mighty economic might to shape regional and global order 
Um, for example, after World War II, the United States had the Marshall Plan to rebuild and reconstruct the um, European countries, which laid the foundation for the US influence uh, in Europe. The formation of the EU, um, of course, um, something we are uh, very familiar with, the BRI, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, and also they could uh, change the shape of world order um, through aid, uh, through humanitarian assistance. So again, yeah, this is related to uh, to economics, but it uh, seems to be something above uh, geoeconomics and geopolitics, but they are, of course, closely linked to both. And great powers also have enormous uh, resources and capacity to uh, shape and form international institutions. Um, they can uh, use their soft power, their enormous diplomatic uh, resources to, um, to again rearrange uh, the global uh, furniture, uh, the change the architecture of global normative structure, for example, by setting up international institutions and uh, promote certain discourses, certain norms uh, through those institutions. And uh, last but not least, the another aspect of the soft power um, is that great powers very often have the the privilege to um, create a new region, if you like. Uh, they could draw, redraw the map. Uh, they could create a new region out of seemingly um, nothing. So for example, Far East, uh, it was called by Britain um, from the British point of view, uh, East Asia, what we now call East Asia, um, looked yeah, to be the Far East uh, as opposed to the Middle East or the Near East. And Asia Pacific, and now increasingly, uh, we are talking about the Indo-Pacific, uh, a term which did not really exist in international relations um, 10 years ago. So by now we hear this almost every day. So Indo-Pacific was, uh, was a term which has been used by marine biologists uh, to talk about um, some, yeah, as a maritime, as a marine uh, biological area rather than a geopolitical area. Okay, it's moving, still moving. This light. Let me know if there is any problem. Yeah, it's moving, Cheng. Uh, great. Um, now, you may ask why bother. Uh, to shape global or regional orders. Mm, what's in it for great powers? Well, 
there's a lot at stake. Um, we know the first layer, what is uh, order? What is a global and a regional order? Order, yeah, we can all roughly understand, um, but uh, essential to uh, order are the rules and the norms uh, and the principles that help govern and regulate relations and behavior. Uh, and so these are the, the order um, is based on certain rules and sometimes written, sometimes uh, unwritten. And those rules, again, could bring um, benefits, um, serve interests of the creator of orders. Uh, so that's why when we talk about uh, international order, this kind of thing uh, is rarely, if ever, uh, neutral uh, or uh, fair or balanced or democratic on a regional or global scale. Um, we often talk about democracy, but when it comes to global order, it's uh, almost uh, to the contrary of democracy. Uh, here in, in, the, in the global order, the, well, the UN seems to be a more or less democratic order where in the um, General Assembly, every state uh, has a vote. But um, as we know, the UN is often sidelined um, by the real uh, regional and global order that matters, such as the US-led uh, rules-based liberal international order. So the order very often um, create this kind of legitimacy to great powers. So this is different uh, to the um, traditional old fashioned, for example, the Roman Empire, uh, the Ottoman Empire, those kind of uh, imperial rules seem to be uh, conducted through naked uh, power politics. Um, and the ruler, the dominant hegemon, uh, did not disguise their dominance. With an international order, great powers could actually hide behind this so-called rules-based order to call the shot, but then uh, to suggest that this is actually the rule for everybody. So you, this kind of investment in creating an order I would get this, uh, what I call the uh, soft power returns. Um, so you reap uh, this uh, benefit uh, as in terms of the soft power. And also, of course, um, no country or no great powers merely enjoying creating an order or maintaining an order for the benefit of uh, prestige, but also for the tangible benefits of uh, economic power. So that's the, uh, the economic returns of order maintaining and uh, making. And also the 
institutions um, will help prolong uh, the advantage uh, because institutions often once created, uh, they enjoy a life of their own. So they can be um, basically um, left uh, in autopilot. And uh, so that yeah, once you set up institutions then the institutions will work for you. So yeah, this is again, a very clever way of managing global dominance. Um, so that's why uh, the well-known international relations scholar, Robert Kehoyne, uh, wrote the book called After Hegemony, and he wasn't too worried about uh, the decline of the US power per se after the 1970s, uh, the oil shock, uh, the rise of Japan, uh, because he believed that uh, the United States uh, had set up uh, a whole range of institutions to, yeah, to institutionalize its dominance through the International Monetary Fund, World Bank, uh, the dominance uh, of the US dollar as world currency, etc. So, uh, as you can see, there's a lot of uh, to gain in being a leader of the international order. And the, but uh, order maintenance and creation does not always bring benefits. So anything, uh, these two sides to almost everything, there is also the cost of being uh, a global leader, if you like, uh, because it often says with great power come great responsibility. So you need to be responsible for maintaining uh, the functioning of the, of the order. And with that kind of great responsibility comes costs, of course, and burdens. And this very often would lead to uh, uh, what some people call the imperial overstretch or overreach. Because um, the, for example, um, Britain at the peak of the British Empire uh, the British Empire was called, yeah, the empire where uh, the sun never set, right? So you got the global uh, dominance uh, around the world. But the problem is uh, you can never go to sleep because, yeah, there is always somewhere that uh, trouble uh, is popping up and you need to deal with. So around the clock. So that's why um, there's uh, huge cost involved for your, uh, for your military bases uh, in other parts of the world. And you need to uh, send troops to intervene and to create, um, yeah, to maintain order, but also very often, at least the, the intended consequences would be to create further instability and creating resentment and backlash, etc. And also, all this would cost money. Uh, where uh, can you get the money to pay for your 
global so-called global commitment or global dominance. Um, and also, as is very evident uh, in the United States, they talk about global leadership is frequently at the expense of domestic priorities, concerns. Because those uh, ruling elites, uh, because their interests are so closely tied to US global interests, they neglect that not everybody actually would benefit from that kind of a global dominance. For ordinary middle-class people, uh, they could benefit uh, through this kind of trickle-down economics. Um, but at the end of the day, that trickle-down is just a trickle. And in the end, they, um, they very often they have to pay the, the bill of global dominance, but uh, see very little of the, the actual benefit. So that's uh, another story. And gradually over the decades, if you like, uh, there would be this kind of leadership fatigue and the uh, populist demand for um, bring the troops home, uh, for being uh, more isolationist, for, yeah, um, for this kind of slogan of make America great again, America first. So we know where uh, Trump comes from, right? So, um, and as, also, as I mentioned, uh, when you tend to put uh, your nose uh, in other people's business around the world, then your responsibility would actually be resented um, because not everyone would welcome your responsibility, uh, your, your leadership, uh, indeed your intervention, uh, your interference, um, because your interference it's by definition very often in your interest, but not in uh, the locals' interests. So that's why we, yeah, we saw 9-11, the blowback against the US military and the economic um, dominance. And also there is this kind of dissatisfaction among rising powers, such as China, uh, who do not want to always um, listen or obey uh, the dominant powers order. So, and and this kind of this could be a vicious cycle when you have this uh, backlash, uh, challenge, resistance, and in order to yeah to crucify uh, uh, this uh, or uh, contain this discontentment, uh, discontent, you need to justify more uh, commitment. Uh, you need to send more troops. Uh, you need to create more um, military bases. And that again, will create more burden um, 
So the, the cycle goes on. And very often, there is this kind of uh, economics of diminishing return, right? At a certain point, yeah, um, your return is um, proportional to your investment. But after that, the more you invest, uh, the return is minimum. So this could help explain this kind of uh, grid power decline because of this uh, bad economics. It, it does not pay anymore or does not pay as much. So now let's uh, go to the, uh, the US-led uh, world order. This, this is something we all are very familiar with. Uh, the US as part of, yeah, as one of the creators of the UN, uh, the Permanent Five, it's a uh, Britain Wood system, something we all, um, we have um, talked a lot about. And the United States also um, was the, the founder of the uh, NATO in Europe uh, in its Cold War competition against the Soviet Union. And in the Asia-Pacific, the United States uh, has had the, the San Francisco system. That This kind of system is the so-called hub and spokes alliance system, um, as you can see through this um, uh, picture. The United States is the hub and the other countries are the spokes. And this system, as you can see, there's no uh, link among the spokes. This ensures that the United States could always be the, uh, the one who um, called the shot. And to prevent the collusion of those vessel states uh, to form a group among themselves. So that's the design. Um, all these kind of measures, groupings and alliances have been designed with one overarching aim, which is to prevent the emergence of a peer competitor in Asia or Europe. So this is something that can be uh, really uh, predict predicted. So wherever there is a perceived peer competitor, whether it's uh, Britain or Germany or Japan or China or Russia, uh, they need to be stopped. So this is almost non-negotiable. And this is the whole point of the United States having this um, so-called global leadership and international order. Um, so that order we, we, we know has changed the landscape, particularly uh, look at this region, uh, the Asia Pacific. Um, so some say, yeah, the Pacific Ocean has been the American lake. Uh, you can see the, the green dots. 
those were uh, territories acquired by the United States uh, at the uh, turn of the 20th century. So that's indeed, um, looks like, yeah, the United States has basically um, colonized the, not just uh, the, uh, the continental um, territories in North America, but the Pacific as well. And the, the other picture uh, shows the US military presence. So even though, for example, the Philippines became independent, uh, but it was still part of the US alliance network uh, with uh, troops stationed there with um, Marines, um, military assets. And also on the bottom, you can see Australia. Now, this uh, is the United States. What about China? Well, yeah, China is an interesting story because uh, China has had a history of being at the center of an order, an order of its own. Uh, the East Asian order, um, that especially before the arrival of the Western colonial powers uh, in, yeah, in, the 19, in, a, in the 19th century. That, was the, that order was uh, based on the so-called tributary system. Um, countries around the periphery of China um, pay, would pay tributes um, basically to show their deference, uh, respect to the emperor of China in return for the rights to, uh, to treat with China not uh, very dissimilar to yeah, what the United States ha has today, uh, essentially. So, but that order was uh, basically uh, destroyed by Western powers from the mid uh, 19th century, uh, the Opium Wars, uh, the first one, the second one, and the, yeah, the following, uh, the colonization or semi-colonization of, of much of China's territories. So China was brought into this so-called family of nations through this um, yeah, Western European colonialism and the Japanese colonialism until yeah, the end of World War II, um, after the defeat of uh, Japan, and um, Nazi Germany, China emerged as one of the victors uh, in the post-World War II world order. So that's why China was one of the five um, permanent members of the UN. So, but as we know, shortly after the end of World War II, uh, China had the civil war, the Communist Party of China, uh, defeated uh, the Nationalist Party, uh, which uh, ruled China as the Republic of China. So the creation of the People's Republic of China, the PRC, um, 
was basically because of the, the ideology and the Cold War, it was excluded from the Western dominant uh, international order. And it leaned to the one side, to the Soviet side. So that uh, was the story of the Cold War, as we all know. And that Cold War lasted um, until the early 1990s, but uh, in, as far as the US and China are concerned, the relationship changed uh, as we talked before uh, in the early 1970s, when the United States began to engage with China to counter Russia, uh, to counter the Soviet Union, uh, just like today the United States uh, is enlisting other countries to counter China. But that, at that time, China is very much like today's India. So China was courted by the United States to uh, counter Russia. So that paved the way for China to, uh, to join the, uh, the world, if you like, uh, as if China was not part of the world. Um, so this uh, showed that uh, was demonstrated uh, through China's joining of the UN to replace uh, the Republic of China on Taiwan to, yeah, to become one of the permanent five. And so these figures give you these um, ideas about how China's uh, integration into the international order um, through its um, entrance into international institutions, um, the membership, so China gained a lot of memberships uh, in the 19, through uh, the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, for example, in 1991, China joined uh, APEC, and uh, 2001, after yeah, two months after 9-11, China joined the WTO. Okay, uh, now what's get more interesting is the, uh, the last 25 years also, and how China, uh, yeah, before 1997 roughly, uh, China was an order taker or rules taker. Um, so China accepted uh, whatever rules um, laid out for China. But after a few crises, uh, the first one was the Asian financial crisis. And this really was a catalyst uh, for the emergence of an Asian regional order where Asian countries began to um, have more say about their own fate. And the Asian financial crisis, um, the performance of China in that crisis was widely uh, praised because China refused to devalue its currency uh, because if China devalued its currency, it would make China's uh, goods more competitive against other Asian countries because the the currencies of Thailand, uh, Indonesia, Korea uh, 
they were devalued uh, really rapidly. So China maintained its value as currency, which helped uh, other countries. And this uh, won the trust of those neighbors. And those countries began to, um, to rally around uh, among themselves. And indeed, uh, that there were two proposals um, put forward by two Asian countries, uh, one Japan, uh, the proposal was to set up the Asian financial uh, the monetary fund because the international monetary fund wasn't, wasn't very helpful uh, at that time. Uh, and another one is Malaysia's uh, proposal to create uh, the, the so-called caucus without the Caucasians. Uh, again, yeah, the Asian countries believe that yeah, the Caucasian countries, the Western countries, uh, were not sympathetic to the plight of the Asian countries in trouble, and they want to create this East Asia Economic Caucus. Both were shot down by by whom? Can you can you take a guess by who basically vetoed this kind of proposal? It, the U.S. Yes, yeah, it was the United States because that would, uh, yeah, these kind of proposals would be seen as a competitor to the International Monetary Fund, to the US dominant, um, dominant uh, order. But nonetheless, um, the countries still um, began to talk to each other more. So they had the, the Chiang Mai initiative uh, to set up this multilateral currency swap uh, arrangement. So in case yeah another crisis came up, yeah those countries would help each other to uh, if they run out foreign reserves, yeah they would lend to each other. And also shortly afterwards, China proposed to set up this China ASEAN free trade agreement uh, zone. So that would at that time would be the largest free trade zone. Um, and so it all went well uh, in, uh, in the early 20th century, uh, in the first decade of the 20th century. And another crisis at the start of um, the, the first decade of the century, we know what happened, 9-11. Uh, and the United States was basically sucked into this war on terror campaign. And China also was able to uh, to be able to play a bigger role because um, just as they say, the tiger is away, and the yeah uh, the smaller uh, animals can come out to play. And China was not a small uh, country any means by any means, uh, but this uh, allowed China more space to play a bigger role. For example, in uh, fixed party talks, uh, in, in relation to North Korea denuclearization. And this kind of talk began to worry uh, some US neoconservatives because they, they saw China was beginning to eat uh, America's lunch in East Asia. So that's why you 
see uh, people like Fukuyama, Francis Fukuyama, he talked about the end of history, right? Uh, he was also one of the uh, first guys to realize not all quiet on the Eastern Front when, well, the United States was busy on the Western Front uh, in the Middle East. So what happened in the East Front was that China um, not only uh, started this uh, China-Asian free trade zone and also signed up to the ASEAN Amity and Cooperation Treaty to um, become more closely linked to yeah, ASEAN countries. And that, that was the, uh, that began to attract the attention um, of some people who think, yeah, the main game was not fighting terrorists, but rather the great power politics. But uh, that still was not the mainstream view at the time. But the, the fact of the matter is China basically was able to gain leadership um, by default. It was not because China was so much more aggressive, assertive, but rather it was because the neglect of um, the United States of this region, because over that period, the US Secretary of State um, skipped so many meetings in the region. Uh, they, they were not just, in, they, they just were not interested. Um, so this really pissed, uh, pissed off many countries in the region. Uh, for example, uh, when George W. Bush came to Asia, he had this uh, whirlwind kind of visit to, to those countries, the state for uh, 20 hours uh, in one country, and then move on to the next. And all he talked about uh, was fighting terrorism. Well, yeah, people could understand why uh, he talked about terrorism all the time, but uh, as this uh, Malaysian lawyer and a politician said, um, we, we've all got to live, we've got, all got to make money and the Chinese want to make money and so do we. So that's why China and those countries began to get uh, much closer. And indeed, uh, this is not just uh, Malaysia and even Australia at that time. As you can see from this picture, in 2003, Chinese President Hu Jintao was invited to give this uh, speech at the joint sitting of Australian Parliament. Uh, Howard uh, was the Prime Minister, and could you imagine this today? But at that time, yeah, Hu Jintao was really praised yeah, by the Australian media for showing more interest because Hu Jintao stayed in Australia for five days, uh, went out to many states. Um, well, George W. Bush also had this uh, joint um, sitting parliament uh, speech and he stayed for, yeah, I could not remember exactly the, the hours, but it, it was in hours, not in days. So, and also China and India seems to get along well and the Prime Minister of India um, 
said, yeah, this is our two countries actually could uh, join forces and uh, reshape the world order. And then the global financial crisis, another crisis. Um, so this time it hit home, hit the home of the United States and showed the cracks in the US global dominance. At the same time, China began to, yeah, to assert more leadership um, because China now has become richer. And also China saw the opportunity. The opportunity was that the region wouldn't need $8 trillion for investment in infrastructure. And investing in infrastructure obviously would in China's interest as well, because that would means that China uh, could sell more goods to other countries if there's better infrastructure, better tra trading routes, uh, ports, um, railways, etc. And so the United States um, realized its um, weakness, especially after the GFC. Uh, it had a brief moment of engaging with China by proposing this idea of G2, group of two, with China, uh, with US and China co-manage, co-managing the, uh, the world affairs. And China thought uh, it was not ready to do that. So China was cool on that idea. Also in the wake of GFC, the Japanese Prime Minister Hatayama proposed the East Asian community uh, idea. Although, again, that idea wasn't popular. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, Hatayama did not stay very long uh, as Japanese Prime Minister for whatever reasons. And so, yeah, we, um, the AIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, um, that was set up in 2009, again, after GFC, as you can see, this was the realization of the unrealized Asian Monetary Fund, uh, the Asian um, proposed by Japan, but now it's China who took the lead. And Australia was part of the just 57 uh, founding members. So all those uh, began to really um, wake up the United States. The, that was the start of the so-called uh, US pivot to Asia or pivot back to Asia, uh, sometimes also referred to as rebalancing to Asia. And Obama realized uh, the main game uh, actually was in East Asia rather than in the Middle East. So he called himself the first Pacific president and he, re he asserted that uh, the United States would not settle for the second place. So China do not, yeah, hands off our lunch. And the pivot to Asia included uh, for example, the, um, the re, 
direction of U.S. military uh, equipment and military assets, uh, basically weapons, uh, to to the Asia Pacific. Uh, so increasing from 50 percent cur uh, currently in in 2010 to 60 percent. So make this region more militarized, obviously in America's favor. And this is the military approach. And the economic approach was to uh, join and create the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was previously a very obscure uh, trade pact between uh, Singapore, Chile, uh, et cetera. So the idea was, yeah, according to Obama, we need to write the rules. Otherwise, China would write them. So that's why the United States should lead the TPP. And now also uh, Hillary Clinton talk, uh, talked about America's Pacific century. So you see the, yeah, you know the message. But um, China, of course, uh, did not stand still. China, when the United States uh, decided to pivot to Asia from the East, China um, believed that, yeah, let's go West. Uh, China did not directly confront uh, the US. So the China's go West uh, involved now what we know as the Belt and Road Initiative, or, uh, initially called the Belt and Road, uh, One Belt, One Road, uh, then it's yeah, changed to BRI. As you can see the red line, that's the uh, road, uh, the belt, uh, the, 20, uh, the economic belt, and the dashed um, blue lines uh, are the road, the maritime road, Silk Road. Of course, yeah, if you see the world always through uh, geopolitical lenses, you would immediately see China's Belt and Road Initiative as China's ambitious geopolitical plan to dominate the region, if not the world. And China also uh, has led this uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which just concludes uh, this year's meeting. And uh, Iran will become a formal member in this uh, group. That's, that's, yeah, it is uh, more, it is less uh, economically focused, uh, more strategically focused uh, with the aim to fight three uh, isms, uh, terrorism, extremism, and separatism. Also, the main game for China remains this kind of economic game. Uh, as you may know, uh, on the same day when the US Australia and the UK announced the AUKUS alliance. China applied to join the Comprehensive Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, the CPTPP. Um, that's interesting. And over the weekend, China 
invite invited three uh, 33 Latin American nations to join the new Silk Roads um, through the uh, the meeting of the community of Latin America and the Caribbean states. Okay, uh, seven. Uh, just quickly, um, you, I think you might have put a typo in. It says Belt and Road Initiative 2003. I think that should be 2013. Oh, yes, yes. Just so people thank you. aren't yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. getting confused and thinking yeah, it's yeah. much older than it is. Yeah, thank you very much. That That's a big mistake. Yeah, that's 2013. You're absolutely right. That, that also, yeah, that's the, in the context of the U.S. Um, pivot to Asia after the U.S. announcement of pivot to Asia. Yeah, thank you, Simon. Okay, let's move on. Now, so this map shows the number of countries uh, with which, yeah, who is the biggest trading partner. The red lines, uh, yeah, uh, signals China and the blue lines, the United States. Okay, um, now the Indo-Pacific, enter the Indo-Pacific. Indo-Pacific. Donald Trump, uh, we know, uh, was very much keen on um, putting America first, but he also realized that uh, the United States needs to continue to maintain some military and strategic dominance in the region. So uh, it need to rival China. And the Indo-Pacific seemed to be a perfect vehicle to do that. Um, it started uh, with the Quad, uh, Japan, India, Australia, and the United States. So this could yeah, broaden the region uh, so that yeah, to rebalance the power. Uh, if you add India to the, to the Asia-Pacific uh, to become the Indo-Pacific, yeah, the, the weight, uh, the balance of power seems to shift uh, away from China. And so that's why India uh, was like the China during the 1970s in the Cold War. So um, becomes very important in the strategic calculation. And the Quad indeed uh, has now is the talk uh, in Washington DC and um, Joe Biden is going to host another quarter meeting, now face-to-face -face meeting uh, this week, uh, on Friday, I think. Uh, it, yeah, this, after, this came after the, will come after the first online summit meeting uh, between the quad uh, leaders uh, in March this year. So now this really, uh, the graph, uh, off, uh, as you can see, these two countries, um, yeah, from the United States perspective, um, they have intensified uh, military exercises uh, in the region. Um, the Talisman Saber uh, exercises uh, conducted uh, not not uh, very long ago um, near Australia, and also the U.S. India arms deal, nuclear cooperation, and the U.S. Uh, effort to yeah, pressure its allies uh, in Europe, in Australia, to uh, ban Huawei from their 5G networks. 
and the warning about uh, China's that trap diplomacy among diplo uh, developing countries and uh, inviting basically uh, European countries to join the party in the South China Sea uh, disputes. Um, more recently, we know the British sent the Queen Elizabeth uh, aircraft carrier through the region. And then the WTO, uh, the WHO, uh, we also see some politics uh, at play in those international organizations. And then this basically, yeah, complete this US-led security or military order. Um, you have the answers. Um, that's this uh, 70 years old now. You have the five eyes. Um, who are the five eyes? Uh, the intelligence um, cooperation between Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Britain, and the US. Yes. And the Quad, and now the AUKUS. Right. So it seems that, um, as you can see, Australia is part of all of this. And some say, yeah, this seems to be reviving the Anglosphere order in Asia. Yes. Yeah, the Western, not just the Western, the Anglosphere now want, want to um, maintain the dominance. And then you have the war on terror continues this, um, uh, the proxy war, if you like, uh, use counterterrorism in Africa, etc., to, yeah, to play geopolitics. And the regional response quickly, yeah, they are balancing, they're bandwagoning, uh, hedging, and this plan B. Um, the plan B, yes, the CPTPP. So those uh, like-minded middle power countries get together without the US or China. But it's interesting that China now uh, asks to join the CPTPP. So um, there's so many interesting dynamics and we are running out of time. Next week, uh, we're going to zoom in on Australia and how Australia would respond and how, yeah, this would mean for Australia's security and the prosperity. Okay, thank you guys uh, for this week and um, looking forward to uh, next week. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Professor. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, thanks.